Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In this season three, we are looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark and also the other Gospels, and hopefully we can see an old story in a new way. And this episode, I want to begin with something that you can actually see today when you travel to the Holy Land. About seven miles south of Jerusalem, there sits this wonder, the ancient world built by Herod the Great. Those seem to be everywhere, by the way. That guy was a builder. And this is a truncated hilltop, which simply means it's a conical hill with the top just just lopped off, which makes it a palace and a fortress, and eventually the tomb of Herod himself. It's called Herodium. And this this place is, is absolutely remarkable. But what's really cool is there would be more to the story past Herod himself. As a matter of fact, some 100 years past the world of Jesus, something remarkable would happen in Judea and also there. Um, so here's how it happens. In 132, a revolutionary leader named Simon, they called him Bar Kokhba, would wage war and establish a three-year-long independent state which was a remarkable feat, and it ended when the Romans finally got it together and crushed the rebellion. But Herodian would serve as a secondary headquarters for Bar Kokhba, and his name means son of a star, which referred to a verse from Numbers 24, 17, that a star would arise from Jacob to save them, and contemporary rabbis would hail Bar Kokhba as a messiah. Now, Messiah is a word that that we throw around a lot. We use this as one of the descriptions of Jesus as the Messiah, especially at Christmas time. But by definition, Messiah was a very Jewish idea and was seen to be a savior or a liberator figure to redeem the Jewish people and lead them into a new age, a messianic age, uh, free of oppression, if you will, free of injustice. And so this particular Simon was called a Messiah for them because he rebelled against the Romans and set up a new world, except this Messiah wouldn't end well. Contemporary Roman historians say that 50 fortified towns and 985 villages were burned to the ground as a result of this rebellion, and even the inflated numbers of 585,000 people killed may not have been all that inflated, given what we know about the killing power of Rome and the policy of Rome against people who would dare rise up against them. We do know that Bar Kokhba himself was killed in battle in 135. Here's where I'm going with this. This is what a military messiah does— This is how a military messiah acts, and this often is what happens when a military messiah rises up against the might of the ruling power. Well, hold that thought in your mind that a messiah can not only just mean Jesus, but someone to to liberate them, if you will. And now I want to take you back to the world of Jesus. So we'll go back 100 years, and I really want to take us to the scripture that takes place in a town called Bethsaida. Now, I want to explain a little bit about and remind you a little bit about how things work when it comes to the Gospels and Jesus' ministry. Almost all the Gospels take place in a 10-mile arc on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you can find most of these places today. Actually, Bethsaida was the last piece of a puzzle because you would start in the east, or excuse me, start in the west, rather, 
with Magdala, where Mary Magdalene's from, and you could go around the ark and you could find where Jesus fed the multitudes. You could see where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. You could see Capernaum. You could see all these sites, and they've all been developed, and they've all got parking for the pilgrim buses. But then when you got to Bethsaida, which is in the east, uh, on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, the way the Jordan River flows in and through the Sea of Galilee, they weren't sure. I mean, they had signs. They still have signs that say Bethsaida's. If there are two, there are two possible sites. They were on the north side of the highway, and you, they would tell you, "Well, here's a Bethsaida that's older than the time of Jesus, and here's a Bethsaida after the time of Jesus." We're just not certain where the Bethsaida in the time of Jesus would be until the COVID disruption. This is one of the fascinating things about this world we're living in, and especially in the world of archaeology and science. Archaeologists have had time without pilgrims and without other distractions and necessary distractions uh, to do some digging and to find some things and to connect some dots. And Bethsaida was found in the mud and the reeds of the shore of the lake, exactly where the Bible said it would be. Bethsaida, the home of Andrew and Peter and a place visited by Jesus many times. Now, all the cities or all the places, all the towns, all the sites of Jesus' miracles on the northwest shore of the lake are now complete. Well, Bethsaida is important because it's going to lead us to an important theme that I want to talk about today in the world of Jesus as seen by the Gospel of Mark. And here's the point I'm trying to make. Hey, a century before Simon bar Kokhba, in the region of Galilee, Jewish people were looking for the same kind of guy. Now, we know that Jesus would be the fulfillment of a dream, but see, we also know how the story ends. It's just not the dream they were looking for. What we see on the other side of Easter is that Jesus was the embodiment of Isaiah 53, which is the dream of a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah who would turn the face to the slap and and bear the brunt of the whip. Uh, This is the Messiah that would tell us that to be first, you first must be last, or to live, you've got to die, or to be served, you've got to serve. Uh, This is a different Messiah than, than a general to fight and kick the Romans out of Judea. He was not a warrior. For this reason, Jesus has to keep his ministry secret as best he can. This is what I want us to pay attention to in this episode, because when we begin to read these stories in the Gospel of Mark, you'll see this come up again and again and again. So I want to read just a few verses from Bethsaida, from a miracle, but I want to pay attention to what Jesus tells him in response. It goes like this. It's Mark chapter 8, beginning with the 22nd verse. They came to Bethsaida, so we now know where that is, right? Some people brought a blind man to him, and he begged him to touch him, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village And when he put saliva on his eyes and laid hands on him, and he asked him, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored. And then he saw everything clearly. And then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. So years ago, I took a youth group to Honduras, something I did before seminary, and we were able to tour something called a mercy ship. And you may be familiar with these. These are hospital ships that visit developing places. This particular mercy ship had uh, an eye hospital attached to it, so these eye doctors. And it was a really cool story because the first lady of Honduras, who apparently at that time was the hero of the nation, uh, more than probably her elected husband. Uh, she was the, the popular one, if you will. She did a volunteer tour with this mercy ship, and she would take the bandages off the eyes of people who had suffered from severe cataracts. I mean, you couldn't see a thing. And now suddenly 
These have been removed, and when their bandages were taken off, the first person they saw was the idol of the nation. It, it was just a remarkable story and charming, and it, I wonder if people didn't feel that way a little bit when they were healed by Jesus, right? The first person that you, you see their face is, is the Lord of heaven and earth. Well, this story is remarkable in that it takes two times to do it, right? At first, he sees people like trees walking and then is healed again and can see fully. I think in my Sunday school days, I wondered if Jesus just maybe was distracted and it didn't get it right the first time or the guy had a, a particularly was particularly resistant to Jesus' healing. But actually, since then, I've learned that in Jewish thought, a two-stage miracle actually uh, stresses more power in the healer. Also, I'm wondering if this story doesn't really become a metaphor for for the gradual awareness of the disciples and maybe the gradual awareness of all of us if we just live a life of faith and a life of Christ. The disciples would learn in time that Jesus is not the greatest sage that ever lived, even the greatest God that ever lived, but rather the God who made heaven and earth and knows the dreams they had last night. I think with the wisdom of age, we also realize who God is for us and perhaps who God is not for us, right? Not a vending machine and not a contract, but rather a relationship with a living God who acts in our story and make, and puts us in the right place at the right time and best yet saves us. But for our purposes, the verse I want us to key on right now is verse 26 of Mark chapter 8. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Read the gospel of Mark as a whole, and you'll see it. Everywhere Jesus goes, he sends people to the priest, but don't tell. He tells the deaf and mute man that he's healed. Tell no one. Uh, He tells others, don't don't say anything. He tells the disciples when Peter says, You're the Messiah. Tell no one in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 30. And still the word continues to get out. Sometimes I wonder when I read the the Gospels, and especially Mark's Gospel, I wonder if Jesus is the loneliest guy on planet Earth. Nobody knows who he is, and they can't know who he is. I mean, the demons know who he is, so he tells them to be silent. Um, People do talk. The word does get out. And I will say on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Gentile shore, he tells one man he heals from a legion of demons in his mind. He tells him, go tell your friends and your family what God has done for you. Because he knows on that side of the lake, he's safe from being misappropriated as a messianic warrior. He is the Messiah, just not the Messiah they dreamed of or they longed for. And so he has to keep it a secret, but not in Gentile lands. And so this guy goes, we we learned about it in the last episode. This guy goes to the 10 cities of the Decapolis, which are these Gentile city-states. He tells people everywhere what God has done for him. And so in time, Jesus has to feed 4,000 Gentile people on that side of the lake. There are two feeding stories, 5,000 outside Capernaum, but 4,000 over in the Gentile lands because that guy told everybody what God did for him because he was safe. The people on the eastern shore of the lake weren't looking for a general to take on the Romans. Get it now? So in the end, there is a remarkable confession, a remarkable reveal, if you will. It's Mark chapter 15. It's Mark's remembering of the saddest day on planet earth, which is the crucifixion and death of Jesus. In Mark 15, in the 37th verse, it goes like this. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. Now, knowing what we know about messiahs, 
knowing what we know about the Messianic secret, knowing what we know about who could see and who could not see and who would understand and who could not understand, it was a soldier who saw in the end, a Roman soldier who saw in the end, which is the height of dramatic irony. Well, I believe that understanding the Messianic secret is going to help us understand the stories of the gospel, but it's also going to help us solve a couple of mysteries. And this mystery involves a story that's not found in Mark's gospel, but rather Luke's gospel alone. So for this episode, I'm going to move us out of Mark for just a minute and over to Luke chapter 24. And it's the mystery of the walk to Emmaus. Now, many of us know this story, or and we at least know that the phrase walk to Emmaus has become a metaphor for retreat weekends or mountaintop experiences. Anytime we experience the risen Christ in our everyday walk, I mean, our everyday life, it could be like a walk to Emmaus moment. So we know that the way Luke tells the story, after Jesus is raised from the dead, these men are walking to a village called Emmaus, and and Jesus is walking along them on the way and reveals himself to them in time. Here's the mystery. First of all, people are confused about where Emmaus might be located. Um, let me read the verses to you, and then and then I'll show you show you how the how the mysteries work. It's Luke chapter twenty four, and it's the thirteenth verse. And it goes this way. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about these things and what had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's what I want us to key on. Their eyes were kept from recognizing them. Um, so here, here's the mystery of the location of Emmaus. There are two sites seven miles from Jerusalem that claim to be Emmaus. Uh, one of them, I've only been to one of these sites. It's a lovely crusader church. The other is also that same era, crusader era, for pilgrims who would come down and remember that Jesus revealed himself. This this church claims to be the site of the supper that these men would have had with Jesus when they realized in the breaking of the bread uh, that he was was the risen Christ. And it's, it's the reason why it's chosen is because it's exactly seven miles outside of town, uh, just like the Bible says. Well, there's another place seven miles outside of town that also claims to be that place. But there's another place that's actually called Emmaus. It's, it's a town called Emmaus that's 20 miles outside of town, and so there's a mystery. So now you've got sites that claim to be Emmaus that are seven miles away, and then you've got a place that's actually called Emmaus, and there's an older church there than the Crusader era. It's a late Roman church. The pilgrims were going there as well, and so you've got to think, what's the deal? And so for that reason, Emmaus has always been shrouded in mystery, but I believe that it can be solved. A couple of mysteries can be solved, one, with a little bit of archaeology and a little bit of science, and two, with the messianic secret. That's why I'm including it in today's podcast. Okay, here's the archaeology. Here's the history. If you look at your study Bibles, if anybody's got a Bible with any sort of sort of notes in the bottom, they'll say this. These men were walking to the village of Emmaus about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Go to your notes. It'll say 60 stadia. 60 stadia, that, that equates to seven miles. That's a Roman unit of measurement for their roads. However, then look at your study Bible notes and it'll say some older manuscripts say 160 stadia. That's 20 miles. What we think happened is that scribes, remember they didn't have a printing press back then, but scribes would write this down over and over and over. And I don't know if the candle was burning low or somebody was tired, but somebody left off a one. And so eventually 160 stadia became 60 stadia, which means that crusader era Christians built lovely churches 
uh, based on a scribal mistake. Uh, the real village of Emmaus predates the world of Jesus. It's a town of great antiquity, and it's 20 miles away, just like the original scripture said. Okay, that's one mystery that's solved by a little bit of archaeology and a little bit of history. But here's another one. Why Emmaus? Why walk there? In a recent issue of Biblical Archaeology Review, uh, they have an article based on the pilgrimage routes to Jerusalem uh, at the time of Jesus, in the world of Jesus. Now, I need to back up and sort of talk to you for a minute about how people worshipped in Jesus' day. If you were living in the Galilee at the time of Christ, then you would have worshipped in the synagogue every Sabbath morning. I should say specifically, you would study in the synagogue every Sabbath morning. You would study and rest and pray. You'd study the Torah and you'd learn the stories. But then you would worship in Jerusalem for the festival. And the festivals would happen three times a year. You at least had to make it to one. If you were really uh, lucky, you'd get to go to all three. But you would have to travel to Jerusalem for the sacrifices and for worship. And it was required uh, to travel there. And so in this issue of BAR, Biblical Archaeology Review, uh, they showed that there were three pilgrimage routes that people would take. From the Galilee to Jerusalem is about a four to five days walk, depending on weather, depending on the health of the pilgrims or the, or the speed of the pilgrims. And Jesus, at the time of his Galilean ministry, probably would have traveled straight down the Jordan River on the eastern shore in what is now the kingdom of Jordan, probably on the eastern shore for most of it, then would cross over and at Jericho would take a right and walk up this long hill to Jerusalem. Jericho being about a 1,000 feet below sea level, Jerusalem being about 2,500 feet uh, up from there. And so it would be a really dramatic uh, climb up this mountain, a little like going up one of the mountains of western North Carolina, except in the desert. That would be a common pilgrimage route for Jesus. Living in Nazareth, what he probably did as a, as a child and a young adult, he would go straight down the gut of the country through Samaritan lands to Jerusalem, which you can do today. And like today, it was, it was sort of the badlands. There were prickly relationships with Samaritans. It wasn't a really safe place, safe way to go, but you could do it. Uh, for this reason, I think pilgrims often took the Jordan River route, even though it was hot and near the desert. You had the river to sustain you, of course, uh, but it was just better to avoid that Samaritan road, uh, as best I can tell. Okay, and then the third route was a westerly route that runs along the Mediterranean that's a, that's a modern highway today. It's called Via Maris. It was a Roman road. It was intended to get Roman uh, goods and, and, and things moved through the Near East, especially through the Jezreel Valley. Uh, it was an important ancient road. And again, it's continued to use today because it just, it just sits on the land just right. There were those three routes. Now, Jesus, living where he did, whether Nazareth or Galilee, would have taken the two eastern routes down. The Via Maris would not be, uh, would make any sense for him because he'd be going the wrong direction. Okay, here's, here's where we're getting to the, getting to the mystery. Emmaus is on the Via Maris. So what we know from scripture, I'll go back to the gospel of Mark for a second. My favorite verse in the Bible is Mark 16, 7. The tomb is empty. Women come to anoint Jesus with spices. And this mysterious man, who could be an angel, says, go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he promised. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Remember, Peter denied his best friend three times. Peter was a failure. Jesus was, would not let Peter go. Jesus wanted to make sure that he would not be Judas, that he would not fail. He was going to be the rock upon which Christ would build his church. Uh, this man with scars, uh, emotional scars, no less than Jesus' personal scars, 
uh, would would begin to save the world, right? Tell, tell the world he was saved by grace. That's the drama. It's one of my favorite verse. But he says, go tell them I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. So John 21 is all about Jesus and Easter on the shores of the lake, teaching them who he really is, teaching them now about the suffering servant, opening their blind, formerly blind eyes uh, to the plan, right? It would take going to Galilee to do this. And also, if you read carefully John chapter 20, when Mary finds Jesus in the, in the garden, he says, don't touch me, don't hold me. He's traveling to Galilee. Now, you got to wonder, why is Jesus, first of all, hightailing it out of town back to Galilee? Although, if you've ever been there, you get it. It's, it's a pretty lake. It's some of the most dramatic and beautiful land you'll ever see. And Jesus, being a Galilean, would always want to go back home rather than be um, in Jerusalem. But also, there seems to be whispers of a secret when he says, don't hold me, don't touch me, don't talk to me, meet me in Galilee. He can't be seen in Jerusalem just yet. Even on the other side of the grave, there might be the temptation to hold him up as a totem or a general, a general who can raise the dead. How could the Romans even compete with that? He has to get out of Jerusalem where he will be misused again and onto Galilee where he can show them the plan. I believe with what we know about the Messianic secret and what we know about Scripture and now what we know about the location of Emmaus on that westerly route, rather, the Via Maris, the, the one out of the way, if you will, I believe that the Messianic secret explains the mystery. Emmaus was a direction that Jesus would travel because they didn't know him there. In his bodily form, he could travel to the Galilee incognito because they weren't ready to know just yet. So now we have a story and a time which they couldn't understand. It was like seeing trees walking. But in time, we would all see clearly that the message of our salvation is not the message of a conquering hero, but the message of a cross. We were not allowed to misuse him until the time would be fulfilled. And that's the purpose of the Messianic Secret. Well, I hope you found that cool and fun. I sure do. And we'll, we'll keep this going next week in our next episode when we return to the world of Jesus. Thanks so much, everybody.